This podcast is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Tonight on 360 Breaking News, the former president tells the Supreme Court to keep him on the Colorado ballot, warning there'll be, quote, chaos and bedlam if it doesn't. Also breaking tonight, Hunter Biden now says he'll talk to House Republicans who are looking to impeach his dad, and he'll do it their way behind closed doors. And later, keeping him honest, what a parent whose child was murdered at Robb Elementary School thinks of the Justice Department's new report released today, detailing all the ways authorities in Texas failed to do their jobs and tried to evade accountability. Good evening. Thanks for being with us. We begin tonight with the former president's Supreme Court filing late today in the case that could decide whether Colorado can bar him from the ballot under the 14th Amendment's insurrection clause. Tonight's brief comes just three weeks ahead of oral arguments in the case and about seven weeks before Colorado's March 5th primary. Senator Jessica Schneider joins us now with the latest. So what does this filing say about the implications of letting the Colorado Supreme Court ruling stand? Yeah, you know, Anderson, the former president's legal team, they're telling the Supreme Court here that Colorado got it wrong when it ruled to take Trump off the ballot. And they're really warning that if this isn't fixed, that if states continue to be allowed to take candidates off the ballot, they're saying it will unleash chaos. They said that in the first page of this 50-page filing. I'll read some of it for you. It says the court should put a swift and decisive end to these ballot disqualification efforts, which threaten to disenfranchise tens of millions of Americans and which promise to unleash chaos and bedlam if other state courts and state officials follow Colorado's lead and exclude the likely Republican presidential nominee from their ballots. And they're saying this, Anderson, because so far two states have ruled to take Trump off the ballot, Colorado and Maine. Both of those decisions, though, they're on hold until the Supreme Court eventually rules here. So that really means Trump's name will, in fact, appear on the primary ballots, despite the court's ruling that they shouldn't be. The bigger question, though, is really what happens when we head toward the general election, you know, if Trump is the nominee. And that's why his team here is urging the Supreme Court to come down on their side and not let individual states take matters into their own hands in deciding who should and shouldn't be on the ballot here. And what's the next steps for the case? Yeah, so the brief that we saw tonight, that is the opening step in this case. Trump's team laid out all of their arguments. So the next step will be the voters who actually won in Colorado. They have to file their arguments by the end of this month to the Supreme Court. And then this case is going to be heard quickly. It'll be heard on February 8th. You know, the Supreme Court, they've already fast-tracked this case because it's hugely consequential. We have the general election less than 10 months away, primaries already underway. And Trump's legal team, they're asking the court to really consider this issue very broadly. They're actually laying out all of their legal arguments in the brief tonight, several arguments, Anderson. They're saying Trump did not engage in insurrection, with the, which the lower courts here found that he did. And then they're saying that this section of the 14th Amendment, it doesn't apply to him anyway. And it really, they're saying that it can't be used to deny Trump access to the ballot. So the nine justices will have a lot to consider when they hear these arguments. Uh, who knows how many uh, arguments they'll actually rule on, but there is a lot at stake. Like I said, just about 10 months until the general election. Yeah. Jessica Schneider, thanks very much. With me here, senior, senior legal analyst and former federal prosecutor, Ellie Honig, and joining us is Colorado Secretary of State, Jenna Griswold. So, Madam Secretary, I'm wondering what you make of the filing uh, by the former president's legal team, particularly the argument that removing him from the ballot would unleash chaos and bedlam. Well, I, I think it's really interesting they chose to use that language because it's just more of Donald Trump saying that if he's not in charge, the country's doomed. Uh, but the language itself, uh, on top of that, I, I hope is not a threat to the stability of our country. 
Donald Trump has used his words to incite violence on January 6th with the insurrection uh, and violence to election workers, judges, anybody who stands up to him and stands up for our democratic institutions. Uh, I think it's just more of the same and it underlines how dangerous he is to the country. Wouldn't it be chaotic though? I mean, if voters in your state and any other state, Maine, felt that they were disenfranchised, whether or not it's violent or not, but it's just certainly chaotic, no? Well, he used two words in that description, not just chaotic. Um, And Anderson, you know, at the end of the day, it's my job and all secretaries of state job to uphold the law in the United States Constitution. There is clear language in Section 3 of the 14th Amendment about when elected officials or anybody who swears to uphold the Constitution engage in insurrection. Uh, It would be equally chaotic to not uphold the Constitution in this case. So I, I think there's lots of legal arguments. Ellie, how do you see it? I mean, what are the odds that the Supreme Court will actually go with the president's brief? I think the Supreme Court is going to agree with Donald Trump. I think they will strike down what Colorado has done here. Uh, Donald Trump makes two categories of arguments. One of them is factual. He says, I did not engage in insurrection. I don't know how compelling that is when you look at the facts. I don't think the Supreme Court's going to touch that. I do think Donald Trump makes his lawyers make some powerful legal and procedural arguments. For example, And Secretary Griswold mentioned the text of the 14th Amendment. Well, the 14th Amendment, Section 5, says Congress, the U.S. Congress, shall pass legislation to enforce this. It does not say Congress or the states, if they so choose. If I can ask Secretary Griswold, I'm I'm curious what your view is, Madam Secretary, about that. The fact that Section 5 says Congress shall pass legislation, it doesn't say anything about the states, Section 3 also specifically talks about the role of Congress. And the role of Congress in Section 3, which is the provision we're talking about, is Congress can determine that someone can be seated for office even if they did engage in insurrection by a certain amount of vote. So that is the clear language. Uh, On top of that, the historical record of this provision is that Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is self-executing, meaning that Congress does not and did not have to pass legislation. It has been used throughout American history uh, without Congress first passing a a law enabling it. So I I do think that is an incorrect argument. But who is the self in self-executing? Who actually enforces this? Who makes the decision? Well, under the electors clause, it's the states. It's up to individual states to determine how to uh, decide who they're going for for president. That's why we have different elections in every single state. That's also why I think the Colorado Supreme Court got it right in Colorado. Uh, To your point, uh, it is pretty evident that Trump engaged in insurrection. Uh, But on top of that, I I would say Section 3 of the 14th Amendment is clear and other clauses in the Constitution let states determine how to execute elections. That's exactly what's happening in this case. Uh, I want to play, Madam Secretary, something that one of the former president's attorneys said on Fox earlier this month about what would happen if the Supreme Court were to take up the case. I think it should be a slam dunk in the Supreme Court. I have faith in them. You know, people like um, Kavanaugh, who the president fought for, who the president went through, held to get into place. He'll step up. Those people will step up, not because they're pro-Trump, but because they're pro-law, because they're pro-fairness. And the law on this is very clear. I'm wondering how you interpret that, because on the one hand, she's indicating that Kavanaugh would step up because the former president 
went to bat for him. But then she quickly corrects herself and say, well, he wouldn't step up because of that. It would be because he cares about the law. I, I just think it's so reckless of his attorney to have said that. Uh, let alone even thought it. It undermines um, the independence or the perceived independence of the court. But I think the, the bigger picture is that this is how Donald Trump operates. He wants people around him to be loyal only to him. He wants them to set aside the law, the Constitution, even so far as saying that if he would assassinate a political opponent, he wouldn't face liability. That's one of the reasons I, I do think he is extremely dangerous. Uh, and I think uh, ultimately it is very likely that the American people will have a huge role in saving our democracy in the general election. Um, and I'm not waiting for the Supreme Court to solve uh, the, the big problem of democracy that we have in this nation. Madam Secretary, I appreciate it. Ellie Honig as well. Tonight's other breaking news, Hunter Biden last seen in Congress at a House Oversight Committee hearing silently facing Republican lawmakers who'd subpoenaed him. He'd previously challenged them to hear his testimony in a public setting, not the private one that they wanted. That was last week. Now, it appears he's doing his talking on their terms, seen as Manu Raju joins us now with details. So what about this deposition? Why has Hunter Biden apparently dropped his insistence on only testifying publicly? Yeah, this is a significant reversal because he had said he would refuse to go behind closed doors, worried that Republicans would distort and leak his testimony. But he was facing the prospects of being held in contempt of Congress. There was a vote that was expected this week. It was unclear if he would be prosecuted over this, but that was a real possibility. That's why Republicans believe he changed his mind. Hunter Biden's team, though, Anderson, has not explained why he has agreed to sit behind closed doors on February 28th. The chairman of the committee, James Comer, did indicate he would be willing to have a public hearing at after the deposition. So we may see him in public after he goes behind closed doors next month, Anderson. What's the reaction being, been among members of the, the House committees? Well, the Republicans were welcoming this. They, welcoming this. they have been pushing for this for some time. But even some Democrats that I spoke to are hopeful that ultimately this will end Republican push, the Republican belief that there was nefarious activity going on involving Joe Biden and Hunter Biden. Because after all, that's what Republicans have been investigating, trying to make the connection between Joe Biden's actions in office and Hunter Biden's business dealings, something they have yet to been able to prove. Democrats say they hope ultimately that will that will scuttle that notion that there was any connection there. Just listen to what they had to say. I suspect that um, he will be the final nail in the coffin of what is a completely bogus impeachment investigation uh, based on what he said publicly previously. I'm eager for him to come in, set the record straight, respond to the slanderous attacks that have been made against him um, by Republicans for years now. He said publicly that there was nothing, his father was not involved at all with this, any of his business dealings. If he says that under oath, will you take him at his word? Well, listen, um, he, if he swears uh, under oath uh, and, and, and answers the questions, that's information that we'll take in, certainly. Uh, but there's little question that uh, he was peddling a brand. I mean, how, who else would hire uh, the vice president's son with no experience for that purpose? That doesn't mean uh, that uh, it, it implicates the president. 
And that last comment coming from a vulnerable Republican member, a freshman from New York, Mark Molinaro, who will be critical in deciding whether or not Joe Biden ultimately will get impeached. And those members who are vulnerable, who are not yet certain about whether to impeach Joe Biden, want to hear from Hunter Biden, want to hear what he has to say, whether he confirms any of these accusations that many Republicans have been leveling against the president. But if he doesn't, those congressmen like Mark Molinaro could ultimately vote against impeaching the president and scuttle this effort. This investigation has been going on for some time. Ultimately, that many Republicans hope will lead to the impeachment of the president. Uncertain, though, Anderson, if it will get there. All right, Manoraj Romano, thank you. Coming up next, the campaign trail and Nikki Haley's new focus on the former president. We'll show you how she's taking him on more directly and whether or not it's working for her. Also, conservative talk show host Hugh Hewitt joins us. And later, the parent of a murdered Uvalde student. His thoughts on today's Justice Department report cataloging all the ways law enforcement failed his child and so many others that horrible day. My name is Sister Monica Clare. Because of TikTok, I've created a community where people can feel safe asking questions about spirituality. I try to provide a really accessible way of them learning about religion and spirituality that's not intimidating. Somebody in the comments said, I have no idea how I got on Nun Talk, but I'm not mad about it. <laughs> I'm gonna teach you how to pray. I'm gonna teach you how to meditate, how to connect with the higher power, because we need that. We need strength and comfort. Sheldon, what do you think of our new pistachios football campaign? Hate it. Uh-uh. Blah. Ugh. What is he doing? I'm storming out. Important healthcare announcement. If people tell you your TV is too loud, or if listening in some environments has become too difficult, we are requesting your participation in a special program called the 30-Day Risk-Free Challenge. Hearing Life Hearing Centers are seeking people with hearing difficulties to evaluate a new 100% digital mini hearing aid now being released. All people with hearing aids or hearing difficulties are wanted to take part in this 30-day risk-free challenge evaluating this new high-tech device that sits discreetly behind your ear. This hearing aid is Bluetooth enabled and rechargeable. All hearing assessments are performed at no charge for those taking part in the challenge. Participants will try these hearing aids for 30 days. Now to take part in this event, you must call. So please get a pencil and write down the number below. Call us and take the Hearing Life 30-Day Risk-Free Challenge. Works hard at hour one and twice as hard when you take it again the next day. So Betty can be the... Barcode Beat Conductor. Let's be more than our allergies. And for fast allergy relief with a powerful decongestant, try Zyrtec D. He has his whole life ahead of me. And I don't want to miss anything. I want to make the most of it. What's that about making some money? Based on the incredible true story. The wrong team. Get a job and she place to live. From director George Clooney. A team of underdogs. One way down, coach. Will make history. Show them what I already know. The Boys in the Boat. Rated PG-13. Consumer Cellular, this is Sam. How may I help you? This is a butt dial. Well, somebody's butt. Just thought I'd let you know that with Consumer Cellular, you can get the same exact coverage as the leading carriers, but for up to half the price. Now, ADT professionally installs Google Nest products. Cool. You're all set. 
arm this system, we should go. When the most trusted name in home security adds the intelligence of Google, you have a home with no worries. Brought to you by ADT. Shopping, working, and relaxing online can attract various digital threats. To improve your protection against them, just turn on NordVPN. This cybersecurity app will block web trackers and malware-infected sites. It will also encrypt your internet traffic without losing a smooth connection. Choose the VPN recommended by Forbes Advisor. Get the deal now. NordVPN, cybersecurity built for every day. With just five days until New Hampshire's Republican primary, Nikki Haley today had the state to herself. Ron DeSantis wasn't there, nor was the former president. He was attending his mother-in-law's funeral in Florida. In a moment, we'll be joined by Hugh Hewitt, who recently spoke with Governor DeSantis about his future beyond New Hampshire. But first, seen as Omar Jimenez, who's there. In five days, we shocked the country. Nikki Haley sees a path in the final days to the New Hampshire primary, one that increasingly involves going right through Donald Trump. The reality is who lost the House for us? Who lost the Senate? Who lost the White House? Donald Trump, Donald Trump, Donald Trump. It's a notable shift from Haley, who up until now has largely focused her criticism of the former president on policy differences. He threw a temper tantrum last night. He's doing other things to attack me, but he won't get in front of me and answer the question. The former South Carolina governor emphasized to voters there's a crucial bottom line at the ballot box Tuesday. I'm going to tell you the truth. You're going to see a lot of things said. But at the end of the day, it's the drama and the vengeance and the vindictiveness that we want to get out of the way. Haley was the only candidate campaigning in New Hampshire Thursday, hoping to capitalize on a toned-down DeSantis presence in the state. As DeSantis says, they're shifting focus to states beyond New Hampshire. Nikki Haley cannot compete with Donald Trump there. Uh, and the fact that she can't do it there, she can't do it anywhere. Uh, she's certainly not going to do it in South Carolina. Meanwhile, former President Trump has turned his attention squarely on Haley here as a weaker candidate to take on Biden. A vote for Nikki Haley this Tuesday is a vote for Joe Biden and a Democrat Congress this November, because that's what's going to happen. You can't do it. And even going after his rival personally, promoting lies on social media about her eligibility to run for president, despite Haley being born in the U.S. He can say whatever he wants. His record has been that he lost the House, he lost the Senate, he lost the White House. That's a fact. That's not what I'm saying. That's what he's done. And Omar Jimenez is in Henniker, New Hampshire, tonight. So how are Haley's more pronounced attacks on Trump playing so far in the state? You know, we were at one of her rallies today, and when she talked about trying to get the vengeance and vindictiveness out of politics, of course, referring to Trump, that was when the crowd broke out in applause, as she also hit him for growing the national debt and saying that she, based on polls, is better positioned to beat Biden than Trump. So some of her most pointed comments, and one of the interesting things about this is when Chris Christie dropped out of the race, I talked to a lot of his supporters who were thinking about going over to Nikki Haley. And those that were hesitating told me it was because they didn't think that she was going after Trump directly enough. So it'll be interesting to see if what we saw today is the beginning of a pattern or more of a strategy or more of just a one-off, I should say, responding to some of the attacks that we've seen from Trump in the final run-up to the election. Omar Jimenez, thanks very much. Joining us now is conservative talk radio host Hugh Hewitt. As you heard in Omar's report, he recently interviewed Ron DeSantis. We played some of that. Hugh, good to see you. What's, what's your sense from talking to DeSantis about his future? I mean, does, did you feel like he's preparing on some level, at least, for the end of his run? 
Good to see you too, Anderson. Yeah, I do not think he's preparing for the end of the run. I think he's going to run at least through March. Uh, Super Tuesday's got, what, 16 states voting on March 5th. There are another four a week later, another six a week after that. So I think he's geared up to go through March and to be the only person alternative left standing if the ambassador does not prevail in New Hampshire tomorrow. She's way behind in, in South Carolina. After the Iowa avalanche for Trump, it became very obvious that it's a it's a big climb for anyone, Anderson, to beat the former president's nomination. They allow you to bet on this in Great Britain. He's a one in ten shot to win. Nikki Haley's at eight to one. Ron DeSantis is at fourteen to one in England for the Republican nomination. So I think it's going to be a very very difficult path for either of them. But if Haley loses tonight, Ron DeSantis is going to be the last one left standing up against the former president. Does the plan, I mean, to stay in the race for another month until you know certainly through South Carolina, regardless of what happens to Amsterdam. Does that make sense to you? Because, I mean, Trump is very popular in South Carolina. It's not as if he's not. I, I don't think, I, I don't see a path for Ambassador Haley. I think that's why she sort of ghosted media for the last week. I, I think the Iowa avalanche crushed her. But I do see a potential, events happen, things happen, that one person left on the race with enough money and some super PAC Governor DeSantis has got an operation. He's very smart, Anderson, as you know, you've talked to him. I let off the interview this morning talking about Chevron deference and Loper Bright and didn't brief him. And of course, he knew all the Supreme Court law and we went through all the law cases. We, he's very, very smart. But is what America wants smart now or do they want another rematch of Trump versus Biden, one that the former president is ahead of in right now? I want to play a clip from your interview where DeSantis talks about where he thinks he went wrong in his campaign. I spent a lot of time on the ground in Iowa, and, and it's good. And when you meet people, you convert them. But there's just so many voters out there that you got to do. And I came in uh, not really doing as much media. Um, I should have just been blanketing. I should have gone on all the corporate sh shows. I should have gone on everything. Do you think, I mean, it is true he did not do that. Was Do you think it was his choice of media outlets that was a problem uh, or, you know, his stiffness on the campaign trail? Because he does seem far more comfortable now. And I'd be interested in hearing your thoughts on this. But, he, you know, he seemed really comfortable at that CNN debate with Nikki Haley. I don't know if that was just because it was a two-person debate and therefore it's it's easier to deal with. But, uh, you know, he says he likes being the underdog. My experience, the Salem NBC televised debate in Florida, he was great. Uh, he's been on my radio show eight times in 2023 and 24, eight times. So it was Nikki Haley, eight times. It's conservative syndicated talk to 475 different audiences, I would think people would want to live there. This year, the comms directors, not just Ron DeSantis, but Nikki Haley's and everybody but Chris Christie decided they weren't going to talk to conservatives. They were going to talk to anyone and they were going to manage their message. Well, you can't do that against president, the former president because he's ubiquitous. He's everywhere. He gets great ratings. If he showed up at your studio right now, you'd sit down and talk to him for an hour. He wins by showing up. It's something I think is a lesson for future candidates, always take every interview anywhere that's not an inappropriate host. Well, it also seems like Nikki Haley is kind of playing it safe and not taking questions at, at town halls in New Hampshire, which is a tradition, of, of course, in New Hampshire. Yeah, I went Morgan Ortegas hosted her. I, I go up in the summer to the north and I went down to one of her town halls. She was superb and she did take questions. Yeah. But in the last two weeks, I think Iowa really stunned a lot of people. Uh, Anderson, a 50% win. I've been doing this for a long time. I've never seen anyone dominate a field the way that uh, in sub-zero temperatures. And they're sub-zero for everyone, right? They're sub-zero for Donald Trump's voters and for Nikki Haley's voters and for Ron DeSantis. He crushed it. 
And I think that sent a very clear message. Gene Carroll helped him. Letitia James helped him. Jack Smith, two prosecution, Colorado Supreme Court, Maine Supreme Court. All of these people are helping Donald Trump get nominated, and they're doing a heck of a good job of it. And the president, the former president's not hurting himself either. <laughs> Hugh Hewitt, uh, good to talk to you as always. Thank you. Thank you, Madison. Quick programming note, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley joined Chick Tapper for CNN Republican presidential town hall at the top of the hour in New Hampshire just five days before they head to the polls. Coming up, the Department of Justice report on the failures by law enforcement after a gunman entered the Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, back then in uh, May of 2022. As you may remember, children call 911 to tell law enforcement about a school shooting. 77 minutes passed between the arrival of law enforcement and when they finally confronted and killed the shooter, we'll tell you what the DOJ found. Grief is a human experience, and the care we receive should be too. Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure they get the help they need. There's always a person there, guiding your employees using data-driven risk monitoring tools so bottled-up feelings don't turn into further suffering. With Evernorth's wide range of behavioral solutions, care can be personalized, simple, and more accessible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. All There Is with Anderson Cooper is supported by Evernorth Health Services. Grief is a human experience. Shouldn't the care we receive feel human too? That's why Evernorth Behavioral Health ensures all members have access to live, specialized support anytime, in person or virtually with a 100% follow-up commitment to make sure that they get the help that they need. So no matter what stage of grief your employees may be in, there's always a person ready to listen. Stressful times can lead many to bottle up complex feelings, especially at work. 59% of those suffering say nothing. This can have unexpected and serious mental and physical health implications. And with Evernorth's data-driven risk monitoring tools, they can help spot challenges early and step in to guide individuals to care before they undergo any more suffering. Each person's grief is as unique as they are, which is why Evernorth offers a wide range of personalized behavioral solutions to meet the needs of every member that they serve. Learn more at evernorth.com slash grief support. For almost two years, families and friends of the 19 children and two teachers murdered at Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, have been waiting for the truth about how the nearly 400 officers who would arrive that day, May 24th, 2022, could wait 77 minutes to confront a single killer. About why in the minds of the families there's been so little accountability and so little communication. Well, today, the Justice Department released a nearly 600-page review about the response, the fullest accounting that we have to date. Joining us now is Shimon Prokupes, who's led our coverage since that day, broken numerous stories about the botched police response, tried to hold people accountable. He joins us from Uvalde with details about what's in the report and what's missing. So, Shimon, a lot of what's in the report confirms all the remarkable and dogged reporting that you and your team have done on this. Is there anything in it you didn't know before? Um, not really, Anderson. I, the thing, The one thing I will say that they illustrated and really it was an important part of this report we know about the failure so in that in terms of that um it's what happened with the families in the moments after once they breached the classroom and were able to get the kids outside and how they treated uh, the victims how they treated the families giving uh, in some instances they were given bad information so some of that was new and 
just the acknowledgement by the Department of Justice at the pain and the grief that these families have been suffering, one, because of the loss of their little kids, and the other, because of how they've been treated by officials here, by the law enforcement community here, by the city government. And that, to me, was so striking. And for the families, it was an important moment because they finally had someone in a position of power to acknowledge what they have been dealing with, what they have had to face uh, in all this controversy uh, here that's been occurring in Uvalde because they just don't feel supported it by is, the community. It is incredible, as you've been documenting. I mean, I know over the, the this entire time, there have been times where families have gotten information from you that, that a, law enforcement authorities in Texas did not give directly to the families. I mean, the, the lack of communication has just been adding insult to, to injury. There, I know there are three officers who are singled out in the DOJ report. What does it say about their actions? So it's the three that we've done extensive reporting on uh, here on your show, Anderson. It's the school police chief, Peter Redondo, who they say was the de facto commander, the guy that was in charge of the scene. But then they also blame two other uh, law enforcement officials, the acting police chief that day in Uvalde, uh, Mariano Pargas, for his lack of leadership, and then the sheriff, who uh, is still the sheriff of this county. Uh, he is actually running to be sheriff again. There's an election that's coming up. Um, so you have the first two individuals I named, Pargas and Arredondo, they're gone. They're no longer uh, police officials. But the sheriff is still uh, the sheriff here in this town. And the Department of Justice went to great lengths to talk about how he lacked any kind of leadership uh, and that he withheld information, critical information about who the shooter was from officials. And actually, Anderson, just a short time ago before we came uh, on air here, we saw the sheriff because he's here behind me in this building because there's a, a forum, a political forum for the candidates that are running. And we actually asked him questions about the latest report. Uh, he was defiant uh, and, and seemingly just not in touch with what uh, people here are feeling. Take a listen. 16 minutes before I arrived, okay? No, the information... They're, they're saying it was you not taking leadership role and telling the officers to go in the classroom, that you were present there with the other leaders of law enforcement from that day, and that you again, didn't go in I, again, and tell officers to go in. You're the leading law it. enforcement official in the county. I got there 16 minutes later. I entrusted in the, in the man with the gold badge. and we Which were is who? Would be the, the chief of police that was there. Which one? Peter Redondo. He was in the school police. Yes. So, uh, I believe that's really I mean, uh, you entrusting somebody, and uh, that's the information that you're receiving. It's a barricaded individual, and then that's it. So, Sheriff, you. Wow. Uh, and actually, Anderson, what the Department of Justice said in their report was that. The sheriff should have taken a leadership role. He is the leading law enforcement official in this county. He should have taken action. He should have ordered his personnel into that room. He had enough information to know that there was an active shooter. But instead, as you hear there, and as he's been doing in the other times that I've interviewed him, he's blaming other people, like right. the school police chief, well, for also, what I mean, happened. What's so and then Anderson, at one point... Go I, ahead, sorry. Yeah. Go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. No, no, Anderson. No, what's so infuriating right. is that... Yes, okay, uh, he was entrusting this guy. He came 60 minutes later. This, this other guy had made mistakes. He could have overridden him based on the universal training for how to deal with shooters. I mean, everybody knows 
I know more. I mean, I, you know, I've read the FBI reports on how to deal with school shooters. You have to go in. Everybody has to go in as quickly as possible. This has been trained since Columbine. Every law enforcement personnel knows this. So he, in a position to have overridden things, should have. Absolutely. And you know, want to know something else that he doesn't even have the proper training. That was the other thing that has been discovered here in all of this, that he was lacking some of the training. Uh, as the sheriff, he didn't have some of the training that was needed to even make decisions. But yet he was in this leadership role. Uh, and the other thing, you know, when I asked him, I said to him, are you upset? Just are you upset by what the Department of Justice is saying about you? And he said simply, no, I'm not upset. Uh, and he said he's going to continue to run for office. He has no plans on stepping aside and he's going to let this community make a decision on whether or not he should continue yeah. uh, being the sheriff. But that's kind of been the attitude here uh, for now almost two years, Anderson. And, and it's really just really upsetting for these yeah. families. Shimon Prokupes, thank you. I'll be joined in a moment by Berlinda uh, Irene uh, Arialo, her step-granddaughter, 10-year-old uh, Amri Joe, was murdered that day. Her son, Angel Garza, is uh, Amri's stepfather. He was a first responder, rushed to the scene. That's when he found out what happened to the children inside the school, in including 10-year-old Amri Joe, the girl who had called him daddy and who he'd raised since she was eight months old. I spoke to him that day after the shooting. One little girl was just, just covered in blood, head to toe. Like, I thought she was injured. I asked her what was wrong, and she said she's okay. She was hysterical, saying that they shot her best friend, that they killed her best friend, and she's not breathing, and that she was trying to call the cops. And I asked the little girl the name, and she's... <laughs> and she told me, hey, she said, Amory. That's how you learn. She was so sweet, Mr. Cooper. She was the sweetest little girl who did nothing wrong. And I'm joined now by Berlinda Irene uh, Ariola. Berlinda, thank you for being with us. After waiting so long for answers, accountability, did this report today give you any of those? Uh, <clears throat> it basically um, just told us what we already knew, uh, what we had already seen. Um, through body cam footage and, you know, the other reports that had come out with, you know, with the help of Shimon. Um, but it was just, it was, it was still a blow um, to see it in writing mm. and to hear the, um, the AG, um, Mr. Merrick, tell us that, you know, what, what the findings were and, you know, to say that had they breached sooner, um, a lot of lives could have been saved, and we honestly believe that Amy would have been one of them. I want to play just a little bit more about what the Attorney General, Attorney General Garland, said today. Let's listen. I think the report concludes that had the law enforcement agencies followed generally accepted practices in an active shooter situation and gone right after the shooter to stop him, lives would have been saved and people would have survived. The, the families and reporters and many others have been saying that since the beginning. Um, have you, do you feel like you've gotten any accountability from Texas officials? No, I feel like 
everyone's just been pointing fingers at each other. No one wants to take responsibility. Nobody wants to take accountability. Um, the From day one, um, just, you know, there was lack of communication. Um, nobody took charge. Not, no, nobody, you didn't see anybody trying to take charge. You didn't see anybody trying to find out who was in charge. Like, everybody was just standing there not not communicating with each other even even when they got information they weren't relaying the information i mean we saw Vargas plain as day you know getting information from from you know the pd itself and still didn't tell anybody about it but then I, we hear oh i didn't want to get clapped oh if it were my child i surely would have gone in there all i heard was me 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 you know, like that nobody took responsibility and nobody is taking responsibility, just like with the, with, you know, uh, Mr. Nolasco that, you know, Shimon just, you know, talked to, he doesn't feel like he, he should be held accountable either. When he knew prior to everybody else, he knew, you know, like everybody just thinks, oh, no, it wasn't me. It wasn't me. Does it surprise you that he's running for re-election? Yes and no. Uh, <clears throat> he's not the only one. Um, there's several that are running for re-elections, Amora, uh, Field, um, you know, his, uh, um, uh, like, it just, it's really, um, it baffles me why, why they would even do that. Like, they, they have the audacity to, to run for re-election after knowing that they failed, and it's there in black and white. There may not be enough to bring charges to them but there's enough proof to show that they failed tremendously. What do you want people to, to know about Amory Jo? That she died a hero. She had a heart of gold and she never met a stranger. She wasn't even too worried about what was going on um, in that moment. You know, she told Chloe, oh, you know, it's gonna pass, we're gonna be okay. And she died trying to save her classmates. And she will always be my hero. Even in the midst of that horror and that fear that she must have been feeling, she was telling her friend it was going to be okay. She, she cared about yes. calming her friend. Yes. She befriended everybody that came across her path. She was a very sweet little girl, very charming, very sophisticated, very, I mean, she was just all the above. She was so adorable. Mm. Berlinda, thank you so much for, for talking to us. I, I'm, I'm so sorry for, for your loss and, and I appreciate you spending time with us tonight. Thank you for having us and Angel sends his regards as well. Please send him my best. Berlinda, thank you. Still to come, as we noted earlier, Donald Trump was not on the campaign trail today. He was attending the funeral for his wife Melania's mom. When we come back, we'll have more on the relationship between Melania uh, and uh, her mom, uh, Am uh, Amalia Kanavs. From executive producers Park Chanuk and Robert Downey Jr., The Sympathizer is the new HBO original limited series based on the Pulitzer Prize winning novel of the same name. Join me, Philip Nguyen, a scholar of Vietnamese American culture and the cast and crew as we discuss the making of this historic series. Subscribe now to The Sympathizer podcast wherever you listen to podcasts and stream HBO's The Sympathizer starting April 14th exclusively on Max. On the campaign trail in New Hampshire Wednesday, the former president spoke of Melania Trump's mom, Amalia Kanavs, whose death was announced last week. 
The former president was off the campaign trail today for the funeral. Randy Kay has more on the woman who raised a future first lady. My elegant and hardworking mother, Amalia, introduced me to fashion and beauty. Melania Trump praising her mother during her speech at the 2016 Republican National Convention. Integrity, compassion, and intelligence reflects to this day on me and for my love of family and America. Her mother, Amalia Knavs, was born in 1945 in Austria, then later moved to Slovenia, which had been communist Yugoslavia. According to an obituary in the New York Times, her mother harvested onions on the family farm before taking a job in a state-owned children's clothing factory as a textile worker. The article also says Melania's mother sewed clothes for her and her sister. Melania began her modeling career in Slovenia and said she was inspired by her mother's work. She shared more about that while eulogizing her at her funeral. She effortlessly introduced me to the charming world of fashion with tales of her glamorous travels to Paris and neighboring European capitals. With each whispered detail of the splendid fashion shows, spectacular cities and chic boutiques, she ignited passion within me, a desire to immerse myself in this extraordinary universe. Melania's parents had owned a home in Sevnitsar, a small industrial town in central Slovenia with a population of about 5,000. That's where the former first lady attended primary school. Melania spoke fondly of her time growing up there, which included family ski trips in the Alps. After the Trump's son Barron was born in 2006, her parents, now grandparents, began spending most of their time in New York, then moved to the United States after Donald Trump was elected president. In 2018, Melania's mother and father both became U.S. citizens, obtaining their citizenship with the help of the former First Lady's sponsorship. Melania's mother was often spotted in Washington, D.C. Her parents also traveled with the former first family on trips to Mar-a-Lago and to Bedminster, New Jersey. And her mother had a front row seat to history, Trump's inauguration, the 2016 Republican National Convention, and numerous treks along the White House lawn to Marine One. When her mother died last week, Melania posted about the loss on social media, describing her mother as a strong woman who always carried herself with grace, warmth, and dignity, adding, she was entirely devoted to her husband, daughters, grandson, and son-in-law. We will miss her beyond measure and continue to honor and love her legacy. At her funeral, Melania Trump talked about the bond they shared. She was my dear friend, an irreplaceable treasure, a gift bestowed upon me by the universe. And for that, I'm entirely grateful. Rest in peace, my beloved mommy. Amalia Knabs was 78 years old. And from the funeral, Anderson, it was clear that both Melania and her son Baron had a very close bond with her mother. She spoke about that during the eulogy, saying that she showered her grandson Baron with affection, illuminating his world with love, tender care, and unwavering devotion in her presence. Uh, during that eulogy, Anderson, Melania also made clear how much she leaned on her mother in recent years, saying that she was a ray of light in the darkest days and offered unwavering support during chaotic times. She said she always found peace knowing that her mother was there to listen. Mm. Anderson. Randy, thanks very much. Next, we'll take you back to New Hampshire as we get closer to our town hall with Nikki Haley at the top of the hour. See what voters there say when asked if they think President Biden legitimately won the election in 2020. 
Also, is Donald Trump fit for the presidency if convicted of a crime? That was one of the entrance poll questions in Iowa. What voters in the Granite State said when Gary Tuckman asked them the same questions coming up. I was honored to receive. At her campaign stop last night in Rochester, New Hampshire, former Governor Nikki Haley continued sharpening her comments about Donald Trump. He honestly thinks if he says something, it just becomes true. She was talking about a claim he's been making about her position on Social Security, but it applies just as easily to his many false statements about the 2020 election or his claims about the criminal charges he faces. Things he says over and over again, and his supporters believe him. Entrance polling shows evidence of this in Iowa, but what about voters in New Hampshire? We asked Gary Tuckman to find out. We came to downtown Portsmouth, New Hampshire, with two specific questions for people who plan to vote in Tuesday's Republican primary. Both questions that were asked on CNN's entrance poll in Iowa. The first. The question that was asked to people, is Donald Trump fit for the presidency if convicted of a crime? And 65% of the Republicans said, yes, he's fit for the presidency. Almost two-thirds. How do you feel about that? Is he fit if he's convicted of one of these crimes? I, I do feel as though he is still fit to be president of the United States, yes. So if he's found guilty, you would still vote for him? Yes. But this man, who had told us he's voting for Nikki Haley, feels much differently. If he's convicted of a crime, I don't think he should be the president. Hank Boucher says he hasn't decided who he will vote for, but does say he likes Trump. Is Donald Trump fit for the presidency if he's convicted of a crime? 91 counts against him. I would say yes, because I don't think there's any legitimate things that they're charging him for. Why is that? What are they charging him for? It's all crap stuff that Biden wants him out. We told him there's no evidence whatsoever that President Biden is behind any of this. But Hank Boucher is sticking with what he believes. So Biden's going to do anything and everything he can do to get him out. Cause I mean, that's what Donald Trump is saying, that, oh, okay. that Biden's against him. But you're believing Trump about that. Yeah. You say it's Biden's fault, but these are not yeah. legitimate charges. Definitely. Then there is the second question from CNN's entrance poll, also showing nearly two-thirds of Iowa caucus goers siding with Trump. You're voting for Donald Trump question for you is, do you think Joe Biden legitimately won the election in 2020? Yes. Dick Porzio says he's probably voting for Ron DeSantis. Do you think Joe Biden legitimately won in 2020? Yeah, I do. Mary Lou Carr is voting for Haley. Do you think Joe Biden won legitimately in 2020? Yes, I do. Carvel Teft is also voting for her. Do you think Joe Biden legitimately won the election in 2020? I do. Does it bother you that Donald Trump keeps saying that's not the case? No, it doesn't bother me. I expect that from him. Alex Zeta feels much differently. He's a Trump supporter who's pretty much all in. There was a lot, a lot of finagling going on. There's no doubt about it. Whether it caused him to win, I don't know. What kind of finagling? Just with uh, the voters... Uh, Stealing of ballots, I think. Hearing things about trucks carrying ballots from here to here. You're not telling me what you're saying. You're talking about hearing about these things. Well, seeing them on TV, seeing them take... And seeing things, but, and seeing, but there's no evidence of that. It's something that Donald Trump keeps talking about and saying. Yeah. But there's no evidence of any widespread fraud. But yet you believe there was. I, I really do, yeah. So what happens if Donald Trump ends up hearing one or more guilty verdicts? This was not a lonely sentiment. So if he's convicted of one of these crimes, which uh, could result in prison time, would you still vote for him for prison? Yes, I would. Do you think it's possible that Donald Trump is just making up things as he goes along, that he's basically punking you? 
No. Do you know what punking means? No. Tricking you. No, he's not. Gary joins us now. Did any of the voters you spoke with signal that they're bothered by lack of evidence for his claims about the 2020 election being stolen? Yeah, I have talked to a few people here, Anderson, who are voting for Donald Trump this Tuesday and say they are bothered by the lack of evidence. They are bothered that he keeps talking about these allegations, but they're not bothered enough not to vote for him this Tuesday. Right. Anderson. Gary, thanks very much. Again, our town hall and Nikki Haley is now just minutes away. But first, when we come back, see you paid a visit to the Princess of Wales as she recovers in a London hospital from abdominal surgery. Kate, the Princess of Wales, continues to recover at a London hospital from what the palace has called successful abdominal surgery. Today, she got a visit from her husband, Prince William, seen there driving to the hospital. William is taking a step back from royal duties to support his wife and their three young children. Now, according to Kensington Palace, Kate will be hospitalized for up to two weeks and faces months of recovery at home, missing a number of royal events. The palace has not specified exactly what the surgery was for. Kate and William have also canceled all travel for the foreseeable future. They usually travel earlier in the year, but will also now miss an expected international spring tour. Meanwhile, King Charles will go to the hospital next week for a large prostate procedure. His wife, Queen Camilla, told local media today that he is fine. And she said that he is, quote, looking forward to getting back to royal duties. That's it for us. I'll see you tomorrow. The CNN Republican presidential town hall with Nikki Haley starts now. I'm Dr. Sanjay Gupta, host of the Chasing Life podcast. In honor of our 10th season, we want to hear from you. Leave us a message at 470-396-0832 and tell us how you chase life. It could be used on an upcoming episode.